This is the Douglas Robin Show. Good morning. Welcome to Doug's Den of Discussion. I'm excited to tell you today that I have a new novel coming out sometime in the middle of May. It's called Love in a Dying Town. It's about a father trying to raise a daughter in a dying factory town. And he's a man with ambitions, wanting to be an architect and build skyscrapers in the big cities. But something always keeps him back and he's always stuck in this town. But he still needs to teach his daughter from right and wrong. Don't want to give away too much. I hope you like it. Here goes. Here's just a sample of uh, the first few pages or so. Love in a Dying Town, Summer, 1984. Jimmy moved past Lily, drawing on the living room floor. We're discussing this, Megan, his wife glared up at him from the brown, tattered couch. Threadbare fabric showed on the armrest. That's all you ever do is talk. I want to live, Jim, live. I've been asking for new cabinets, marble countertops, and for goodness sake, a new couch. This thing is gross. She shuddered, looking at it. He stopped pacing the worn hardwood floor. That's really expensive what you're talking about. Everything's about money with you. You need to buy, you need money to buy things, he leaned in, shaking his head. You ever hear of a credit? I mean, don't you even love me? She batted her blue eyes at him. Yes, of course. Well, I have been saving for that architecture program. I could use that money, I guess. What's a few more months waiting for my dream, huh? Wanting to appease her and keep the peace, he shrugged at the idea that had eluded him for years. That dumb program ain't enough for no kitchen cabinets, marble, marble countertops, and leather couch. Leather? You're being nasty now, and we don't have that kind of money. We're not who you want us to be. In his mid-thirties, his rugged face already showed stress lines. He already worked too hard at the factory, and his knees bothered him. His arms and chest were cut like stone, rough and strong. He stood there in his signature black t-shirt that matched the color of his thick black hair. On the wooden end table, Megan poured another shot of Southern comfort and slammed it back. The problem is you ain't never going to have that kind of money, and I deserve Betty. Better. You and that girl. Oh, let me tell you. You mean our daughter listening from the floor? Seven-year-old Lily had crawled under the coffee table, her safe space. She did this when the tone in mommy and daddy's voice changed and hardened. He knew she heard everything. He just didn't know what damage it was doing. I know who she is, losing my beauty because of you two, like two bricks around my neck. Megan shook her head. Her wavy blonde hair flowed over her, her voluptuous body. The ugliness of her raging bitterness didn't match her physical good looks. He never did understand the bile that spewed out from her. She could make him laugh, though, like few could. Yet something came into those eyes. Something would take hold. Something ugly, mean, loveless. He gazed downward. Lily, honey, cover your ears. Megan, put that bottle down. I can't talk to you like this. Why, well, I ain't drinking too much, she said, pouring herself another. Calm down. It's like you're fighting me and the whole world here. He sat on the couch next to her with the busted coil and looked at it. Okay, maybe we do need a new couch. He laughed a little, trying to soothe her. Yeah, this nasty old thing, she paused, looking away. The short of it is, I got me an apartment, and a real nice one. She stood, throwing back another shot, drinking as if some answer was to be found, or to silence the ones that had already come. 
Jim stood abruptly, knowing she always had connections to people with money. His face turned red as they squared off in the living room. We have a family here, he gestured to Lily under the table. The lines in his forehead creased. The permeating liquor smelled like bad cough medicine. She stood to battle him and tear him apart. Don't you worry about that. I'm done with y'all. Tired of waiting. Got my life to live. It was all a mistake anyhow. Nothing better. Nothing but a brick around my neck. Both of y'all. She stumbled, almost stepping on Lily's foot that stuck out. Lily stopped drawing and looked out with reddened eyes. Her straight blonde hair fell to the side. Don't go, Mama. I'll change. I'll be good. I promise. She crawled out, grabbing for her. This wasn't the first time Megan had left, but this was the first time she got an apartment. Jim said, you haven't done anything wrong, Lily. Mom's just talking crazy. Megan scowled. Oh, hush, girl. I was never no good to you anyhow. I'll send for my things. She stepped to the front door. No, Mama, don't go. Lily clung to her leg, crying. Jim pulled her off as Megan moved to the door, shaking her leg without looking down. Let her go, Lily. Let her go. This thing inside isn't your mother. Why don't you drink more, Meg? He said to her as she reached for the door handle. Destroy everything around you. She glared back at him while Lily sobbed on the floor, pounding it with fists and feet. No, don't go. Jim moved closer and quieted his voice. Look at what you're doing to her, to us. She glanced at the room and softened. I can't do it, Jimmy. It's too hard. I ain't no good at it. Besides, it ain't what I want. Well, you should have thought of that before we had a child. I did. She scowled with the door open. She paused, looking out at the neighborhood with its small homes. Many of them were shuttered with boarded up windows. Turning back, she said, I deserve better than you in this broke down house, broke down town. Everything's goddamn broke around here. She kicked a foot forward with her tall high heel boots as if kicking at something in her way. You're drunk and I don't know what the hell you're ranting about. You have to fight for what you want. It ain't just given to you. She stared at him with venom in her eyes, the blue a little darker. I am sick of you telling me who I am and what I gotta do. She swung a fist a few feet from him and then staggered down the front steps toward the driveway. She yelled over her shoulder from the walkway. Look at you, a big nobody. You could have been somebody, but you ain't. Now don't call me none. She stumbled to her 10-year-old blue Lincoln Continental sitting next to his black pickup truck. I'll be in my nice apartment with my stainless steel appliances and a view of a goddamn fountain. He slowed on the walk. Do I even want to ask how you paid for it? Don't you worry about it, none. She turned to him with reddened eyes, ready to fight him and anyone else. I already know the answer, don't I? Let's just say I met someone real nice who's got a little money. Treats me better than you ever could. Jimmy got quiet. Money was one thing. Cheating was something else. With anger boiling inside, he said, you better get out of here before I do something I regret. Don't want to raise my hand, but help me God, I will. You ain't good enough for me anyways, Jim Bone. Never have been. Regrets, boy, that's all you've got. The claws were out. It was nothing he or the world was doing in that moment. She wasn't even in that moment, hopping in her big sedan, but stuck in some pain that dug in deep long ago. Opening the window, she shouted over the revving engine. You should have been an architect, but you ain't, and you ain't never going to be nothing rotten in this town. She backed up a few feet, knocking over the garbage cans, and then turned, driving across the front lawn. That's great, Meg. Really great. 
She passed in front, flipping him the bird. It was a Sunday night and her dander always rose the night before work and the reminders of life and struggle. Swallowed by the neighbor's hedges, her taillights disappeared. Now standing alone in peace, nature called to him as it sometimes did. It held him close like those skyscrapers he dreamed of working on since he was a boy and can never reach. The Jacksons, neighbors from down the block, had walked past with their sons in a stroller and averted their gaze. Inside, Lily sobbed. Jimmy sat on the floor and leaned against the couch, stroking her golden hair. She inched over to lie on his lap. He looked down and said, Daddy's never going to leave you. You understand that? Promise? Lily looked up, asking through tears. I promise. She laid her head back down on his lap and stared off at the white wall next to the entertainment center. Images flooded his mind. Earlier in the week, Megan urged him one night after work. Let's run. Let's get out of here. Go to California, where the sun always shines. Or New York, where they got them buildings you love. Sell the house. Sell the truck. Let's just go. Please, baby. It was late summer, a few months before the bleak grays and hard land of winter set in. He stared at the dream life within, the vision of himself, a life he'd be proud of. Bowen Enterprises was emblazoned upon his hard head as he stood on scaffolding high above Milwaukee. This was the image he saw most often, the life in his bones he should be living. Engineering feats like the tapering of the tapering concrete of a dam that holds back billions of gallons of water or buildings that poke into the sky had always fascinated him, lit him up. He wondered if she was right. He wondered, maybe they should abandon their dying Midwest town that watched over the graves and roots of his parents to head west or east, anywhere but here. For the fall semester, he had enrolled in an architecture program at the local community college. He'd been saving for months, Watching those taillights fade again in his mind, the dream faded once more with them. There'd be no one to watch Lily, no one to split the mortgage and bills with. Every penny would be needed to stave off the foreclosure virus that had spread through town like a plague. His dream was always just out of reach. Though he wanted to be a good daddy, doing his best never felt good enough. He never felt smart enough, rich enough, or successful enough. He held on to that same fraying thread everyone else did in town, what was left of it. His father had served in World War II and was a factory man like him. Both of his parents had passed away now. He was what was left of that heritage. His older sister had moved away long ago. He wanted a big house with lots of windows and a full bank account. He wanted his little girl to have toys, games, and a bicycle. He wanted a large yard and a spotted black dog named Missy. He wanted more kids and the house to be filled with laughter. His eyes closed as a smile crept cautiously across his face. He wanted to be proud of himself, building skyscrapers in Columbus, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York. He was an ambitious man, yet also wanting a great love story. He held on to Megan tighter than he should have. Late fall. The factory shift ended at 5 p.m. Jimmy stood with his 20 or so co-workers near the gray time clock inside the big metal building, waiting for Jack the foreman to speak. Shauna, an unhappily married, petite, brown-haired woman with soft brown eyes, shorter and younger than Jimmy, 
stood a few feet away. She knew all about him and Megan, the feuds, as did everyone else. Megan worked upstairs in the office that overlooked the warehouse floor. Shauna noticed his wedding ring was off. They'd known each other for years. Her daughter Jackie was in Lily's grade. Her husband had been unemployed for over a year now and turned angry, bitter, and cruel. His cruelty had risen occasionally at times, hitting her and Jackie for his own failures. At the least, a berating of their, of their lack of worth would bellow from his chapped, damp lips. She studied Jimmy, his physique and raw power. She'd seen him lift hundred-pound sacks over each shoulder. But there was more to him, that she knew. There was more to her as well. Everyone in that group could have been someone else. Linky Dan, with his receding hairline, stood at the edge and could have been a doctor. In his 60s, short Ned with gray hair and a pot belly wanted to be an astronomer, astronomy teacher. He owned a telescope that charted the stars and he hoped to name one himself. Rhonda, an arborist with long straight hair, an ex-hippie, loved the outdoors and growing crops, cross-pollinating beautiful flowers and colors. Her dream was to have multicolored tulips fill her backyard while the fragrance permeated her home. Some only drank, fought, and made babies. Some never thought much about it, drinking, grilling, chasing the opposite sex. Some of the future burned in their hearts, seared in their minds, waiting, always waiting. These secrets escaped into the factory like a whisper resting upon a metal shelf, waiting to be picked up and run with. The crowd waited for Jack to speak while the factory machines rumbled and groaned on the other side of the divider a few hours over. For many, the world building would have to remain stuck in their hearts as they bent, cut, and prepped pallets for an honest day's work. Jack, the short-haired math piece for the bosses, stood on his stack of wood pallets with his famous clipboard that was checked daily for news, orders, and OSHA issues. He had a job to do, a family to feed, a kid needing braces, and a sick, overweight mother. He was a thin, reserved man who mostly kept to himself on his clipboard. At night, his mother called out, Jackie, from down the hall in a room that smelled like mothballs and cheap apple pie-scented candles. His kids, thought, his kids thought she was some rotund alien who snored loudly, sucking in the curtains. His equally heavy wife ignored her nightly pleas by turning up her favorite game show on their television. Jack began, we've got four trucks leaving tomorrow. Ten years ago, we had 12 a day at this time of year. In fact, it's been light for months, and the signs don't look good. If this continues well, much coming in from overseas. The last time they heard these words, half a dozen employees got laid off, fired with two weeks severance and an uncertain future staring back at them. Looks flared about the room, fear, ill partners, children needing medicine. Some need an excuse to leave this dying town. Some didn't know how to leave. Some wanted to fight on. It was home. I'm just going to come right around and say it. Helpless eyes stared, at it, stared up at him. No bonuses this year. The crowd erupted in protest. How the hell? Blanky Dan shouted. I know, I know. Before you say it, I know. I don't get one either. He raised his hands, trying to shield the abuses now hurled at him. His, his position isolated him from the workers and brass alike, as he was neither. A middleman in the field of battle, a tug of war with the push and pull of finances. His Adam's apple bobbed while he asked for more and offered less. 
Blinky Dan continued. Come on, Jack. We count on those few hundred to get us through the holidays. What the hell are we supposed to do and tell our kids? He shouted from within the group. You know, old Minton, you know, old, old man Benton has his money with that fancy house up in Beaufort. How are we supposed to survive? Shoot, that's all we do here is survive. Not even sure that's what we're doing. Dan looked around at his coworkers. Others nodded and grumbled in agreement. Jack understood the angry faces and moving mouths. He understood they could tear him apart. But he stood his ground. You always have the option to leave, Dan. And you're always welcome to visit Mr. Benton upstairs and tell him how you feel. Jack gestured to the glass offices above the warehouse floor. Dan swallowed, lowering his eyes, defeated again. Jim closed his eyes too, clenching his fists, knowing his dream, the life he needed, kept getting further and further away. He shook his head, but only for a moment. After several economic downturns, Midwest Grains operated after reducing their workforce by 50% over the past five years. Other companies had already fallen. Shona lowered her eyes as well and shook her head, worrying about her husband's wrath. The metal roof stood high above the vacuous warehouse space. There were no windows under the blue-black Midwest sky. Jimmy was set to get Lily from daycare after work. His black pickup truck sat waiting outside, waiting to fire cylinders and roll. Jack spoke again once the protests quieted. He wasn't much for shouting and already had high blood pressure. After all, he was the one who had to lay off all those employees. Look, it's the holiday season. You know the drill. We're offering overtime, time and a half as usual. Get it while you can because it probably won't last. We have a small spike of orders for the holidays and several of you are taking time off. If you need extra money, this is the only way to get it. Who's interested? The 20 of them glanced around. After the sting of no bonuses, no one wanted to raise their hand and help. They already worked too hard, making up for those previous cuts and fewer bodies on the floor. He asked again, come on, I know some of you need the money. We all do, Jack. Then a heavyset man shouted from the side. Jimmy stood in the rear with arms crossed. Count me in, he shouted, raising his hand, raising it for his little girl. His rugged voice rose over the crowd. Several others followed suit, raising their hands. It ain't fair, but count me in too. Shoot, Blinky Dan said. The holidays were coming and they all needed cash for gifts. There's the spirit. Now don't forget the potluck dinner. Wear your best outfit and bring a dish. He checked his clipboard once more. Okay, that's it. After the meeting broke, Jimmy stared at the exit. He should run, like Megan said. Go to California or New York. Start a new life. He thought about his little girl at daycare being raised by a stranger. It aided him daily as he laid in bed or drove away from her. The two of them hadn't seen Megan at home since she left, and they'd called her several times. But she was still Mr. Benton's administrative assistant. Jim had seen her, but she avoided eye contact and conversation, quickly walking away. He glanced up to the office window, knowing her desk was only a few feet in. He also knew his little girl needed her mother, and nightly cried herself to sleep. If Megan could find a way, if Megan could only find her way back to them. He turned to the aisle with stacked goods on giant shelves to prepare an order that was leaving the following morning. 
bending and cutting open pallets, shifting 50 pound bags of grain, sand, soil, sorghum, mulch, feed. He bent and cut, twisted, pulled down and pushed up, wrapping pallet after pallet, wiping his brow and waiting for the forklift driver, the one coveted job, to bring the order to the loading dock. With knees aching, his lower back seized in protest. Jim leaned more on shelves than he should, on pallets and boxes. The repetitive tasks and concrete floor were unforgiving, as unforgiving as the world that pulled in around them. At 7 p.m., tired from never getting off his feet, he hopped with relief into his Ford F-150 with its jagged, rusting metal at the bottom, a truck that kept up with his needs even as it fell apart. Other vehicles sat on the gravel parking lot, waiting for their owners to take them home, to a bar, to a lover, or out on the open road, never looking back. Well, that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed um, this little sample of, of my new novel, Love in a Dying Town. Like I said, it should be out sometime in uh, May. I'll certainly send out uh, some emails about that, but I uh, hope you enjoyed it and hope you have a great day. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Douglas Robbins Show. To find out more about Douglas and his books, check out douglasrobbinsauthor.com.